You're on a different road. I'm in the Milky Way. You want me down on Earth, but I am up in space. You're so damn hard to please. We gotta kill the switch. You're from the 70s, but I'm a 90s chick. This is the bridge and perhaps the most memorable part of the 2012 mega hit I Love It by the Swedish electro-pop duo Iconopop, featuring British pop singer Charlie XCX. Iconopop released this tune at the end of my first year in college in May of 2012. Being born in 1993, the vast majority of students enrolled at my college at the time were born in the early 90s, making that final line of the bridge, quote, I'm a 90s chick, a prideful rallying cry. But what does that mean to be a 90s chick? The easy answer would be a woman born in the late 80s or early 90s that remembers at least part of the 1990s, or the 1990s was an integral part of the foundation of how they experienced and viewed the world, blah, 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 blah. But that answer is no fun. So I asked some people what they thought it meant to be a 90s chick. The first thing my cousin Alexa said in response to this question was, quote, Lisa Frank everything. She also mentioned the essentials of the MySpace Top 8, Tamagotchis, and, quote, an AIM screen name that was absolutely mortifying. She's not wrong. My first AIM screen name was Jula for you. My friend and friend of the podcast, Ella Hyder, said being a 90s chick means surviving low-rise jeans and green ketchup. Her sister, Mary Grace, associates the 90s with fad diets and codependency and thus doesn't enjoy being a 90s chick. My sister, Rachel, identifies being a 90s chick with an unwavering dedication to the sacred caramel macchiato. She also said, quote, something about Tamagotchis. Look at Tamagotchis getting some love. Anyways, back on the second episode, I referred to my beloved Red Hot Chili Peppers as, quote, a 90s band. I then went on to describe in great detail what makes a band identifiable with a particular decade, focusing on an in-depth manner on what makes a group a 90s band. That's a joke, of course. I gave no such definition. I just continued on whatever rant I was making. So now I'll ask the question, what makes a musical artist a 90s artist? The easy answer would be an artist whose most recognizable and acclaimed work disproportionately favors a particular decade. So, for example, a 90s band, while maybe functioning successfully in the 80s or the aughts, would find their biggest hits and masterpieces primarily in the 90s. Again, that answer, no fun. My friend Dylan, who lives in Florida, poor bastard, said, quote, be Oasis. That's the only criteria. There's only one 90s band, and it's Oasis. Keeping up the Britpop love, my friend Alejandro, who also lives in Florida, another poor bastard, said, quote, you gotta be smart, you gotta be responsible, you gotta be witty, and you gotta be a rock star. So you either gotta be Liam Gallagher or Damon Alburn. My friend and author Eugene Murphy said, quote, keep the hair shoulder length, necklace is optional, bonus five points for being a three-piece, and by goodness, by gosh, let there be grunge. So now that we have both seriously and facetiously zeroed in on what makes a musical artist a 90s artist, I will spend the remainder of the episode talking about artists that are categorically and undoubtedly not 90s artists. I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stan, 
In this hotcake slash random topic episode, which will be released in two parts, I will discuss the six greatest 90s albums by artists not considered, well, 90s artists. I may or may not crown a winner as to which of these are the greatest. I don't know. We'll see how I'm feeling. In order to understand why these albums are not by 90s artists, we have to understand which other decade or decades are associated with each artist. In order to, in order to do that, we have to venture back to bits of music history that eliminate the 90s being that decade. Since our timeline may not necessarily find itself chronological, it is important that we utilize a time machine to jump back and forth between decades. To find a time machine, I googled where I could buy a time machine. Unfortunately, the only results that popped up were wakeboards, and I'm not a very good wakeboarder, so we'll have to use an imaginary time machine. My bad. Also, in case you're interested in why I chose six albums, if you remember, for the other random take slash random, epi- random topic episode, I chose 11 albums to discuss. 11. That was a lot of work. So this time, I only chose six. For our first 90s album, not by an artist considered a 90s artist, we will get in our time machine and travel to December 24th, 1988. On that day, the song Welcome to the Jungle by the notorious LA rock gods Guns N' Roses peaked at number 7 on the Billboard Hot 100. To that point in music history, it was the heaviest song to reach a spot that high on the pop charts. Since that date, the only songs that charted in the top 10 with that level of heaviness and intensity that I could think of would be Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, Faith No More's Epic, Linkin Park's In The End, and, well, two other songs by Guns N' Roses. For better or for worse, hair metal dominated the 80s rock scene and is central to the 80s music identity. Although many memorable hair metal songs peaked on the Billboard Hot 100 Top 10, such as Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, Poison's Nothing But a Good Time, and just about any single Bon Jovi release in the latter half of the 80s. Guns N' Roses felt like the only band slapped with the hair metal label with any authenticity to the metal part of the genre. In their 1987 debut, Appetite for Destruction, you can smell the sex, hear the gritty blues rock, and feel the aggression. The album is considered not only one of rock and metal's best albums, but... Also, just one of the best albums within popular music in the aggregate. Rolling Stone ranked the album as number 62 on their 2020 list of the greatest albums of all time. In 2011, Australian radio station Triple M listed the album at number one on their ranking of the 250 most life-changing albums. In 2012, an American entertainment publication, Slant Magazine, ranked the album number 37 on their list of the greatest albums of the 1980s. The Sleaze Metal Classic spawned three top ten hits, the the previously mentioned Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, and Sweet Child of Mine. Despite their release over 35 years ago, these three singles have a combined Spotify streams amount of over 3.4 billion.
Additionally, the album has sold 30 million copies worldwide. Adding to their 80s legacy, the band released a controversial EP titled GNR Lies in November of 1988, which contained the hit acoustic single Patience, peaking at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in June of 1989. Between those four hits, the legacy of Appetite for Destruction and the notoriety that GNR experienced in the late 80s, their status as a true 80s band is undeniable. So inevitably, they entered the 1990s as the world's biggest band. With that status, they decided to take their time in creating what they felt would result as a masterpiece. However, after early struggles in the recording process, which started in January of 1990, the band underwent lineup changes. These included the contentious dismissal of drummer Steven Adler, who GNR replaced with Matt Sorum, the former touring drummer of the English rock band The Cult, as well as the addition of Dizzy Reed on keyboards, who had befriended the band's frontman Axl Rose in the mid-80s when Reed's band shared rehearsal space with GNR. With the newly formed lineup, which in addition to Reed, Rose, and Sorum included the tall and pretty, Duff McKagan on bass, Izzy Stradlin on rhythm guitar, and the legendary Saul Hudson, better known as Slash, on lead guitar, the recording process eased up and became significantly more productive. A ton of controversy, trials, and tribulations surrounded the recording and production of their follow-up to Appetite for Destruction, but against all odds, on September 17, 1991, Guns N' Roses released the gargantuan double album Use Your, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Those two discs contain 152 minutes and 4 seconds of music. Although technically two separate albums, I will often refer to them as the singular entity, Use Your Illusion, not to be confused with the 1998 compilation album Walmart put together to avoid several songs on the album with naughty lyrics. Anyways, Use Your Illusion showcases the pinnacle of rock and roll maximalism. Axl Rose's goal for the record was to, quote, bury Appetite for Destruction. In an effort to do just that, he and the band showcased a wide variety of genres, textures, and intensities. The album begins with the sleazy blues rock song, which sounds like it could have been from Appetite for Destruction. That tune, Right Next Door to Hell, recounts when Axl Rose's neighbor accused him of assaulting her with a wine bottle and uh, a piece of chicken. As the album progresses, they hit peak intensity with the aggressive thrash metal anthem, Perfect Crime, in which Axl sounds as angry as the media portrays him. But right when you think the album is going to remain a straight-up metal classic, the boys break out the acoustic guitar for You Ain't the First a laid-back ditty with hella Delta Blues vibes. They then kick it back into gear with Bad Obsession, a bad-to-the-bone-style old-school blues rock song about the drug use that multiple members had of the band had suffered from. Towards the end of the first disc, you get Don't Damn Me and Dead Horse, two solid tunes that ride the ambiguous line between hard rock and heavy metal that vintage GNR often finds themselves residing between. On the second disc, Use Your Illusion 2, the highlights include the short but sweet country rock song Yesterdays, as well as the powerful cover of Bob Dylan's Knockin' on Heaven's Doors, one of the various songs on the record to showcase Axel's legendary vocal range. Also, shout out to the dope gospel choir during the breakdown. Other highlights on Use Your Illusion 2 include Shotgun Blues, an aggressively catchy sleaze metal tune allegedly about the band's feud, well, Axel and Izzy Stradlin's feud with Motley Crue's frontman Vince Neil in 1989. Ever the poet, Rose instructs, instructs Neil in the song to quote, suck my ass. 
Use Your Illusion's first single, You Could Be Mine, slaps. That single, one of several constructed during the Appetite era, begins with a hard-hitting drum intro from Sorum that sets the tone for the energetic hard rock classic. Fun fact, You Could Be Mine was featured in the film Terminator 2. I purposely left out four killer songs from Use Your Illusion, two from each disc. Use Your Illusion's inclusion of epic rock songs separates the album not only from Appetite, but also from many of their rock counterparts at the time. Four songs on the record exceed seven and a half minutes. Civil War, the last song to feature Steven Adler on drums, begins with a monologue from a prison ward in the 1967 classic film Cool Hand Luke, and then transitions into a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, seven plus minutes oscillating between a tender acoustic ballad featuring Axel's lower register and in-your-face metal sections in which Axel sings at his most piercing. The other epic song on News Your Illusion 2, Estranged, measures at 9 minutes and 23 seconds, easily in their top five songs all-time in terms of dynamics. The progressive rock tune showcases Axel's chops on the piano, his ability to utilize various vocal textures, and the often indulgent band's ability to take a less-is-more approach. Also, Slash's riff in Estranged is among his most memorable and emotion-evoking. The heaviest and loudest epic song from New Use Your Illusion concludes the first disc. Coma, which measures at a whopping 10 minutes and 13 seconds, ranks perhaps as Axel's best songwriting, and tells the story of when he attempted to calm his stress with a bottle of pills that caused him to overdose instead. The length of the song allows him to, foot, to put forth the amount of words necessary to depict coma as both a well-known medical condi condition and a metaphor for living aimlessly. A slash composition, it's one of the crowning moments of his career with a unique structure that intentionally lacks a chorus. His flawless guitar work on the track features an ominous riff and a gorgeous, minute-long bluesy solo. I saved Use Your Illusion's best epic song and perhaps Guns N' Roses' magnus opus, November Rain, for last. Axel wrote the origins of this nine-minute power ballad in the early 80s, and according to Slash, the band recorded a demo of the song in 1986 before the beginning of the Appetite for Destruction sessions. Two versions of the November Rain demo exist, one consists of piano and vocals, and the other consists of acoustic guitar and vocals. The song is known for its orchestral and classical arrangements, aided in large part by Matt Sorum, who had grown up playing in a wind ensemble. Additionally, Slash's two guitar solos, which add up to over 80 seconds, as well as his bone-chilling riff during the song's outro, are regarded of some of his career's best work. Speaking of the outro, the nearly two minutes of intense symphonic rock serves as the payoff for this world-class gem. To date, November Rain achieved the second highest chart success for the band, behind only Sweet Child of Mine. November Rain peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 on August 29, 1992. It stood as the longest song to chart in the top 10 for nearly 30 years until Taylor Swift's 10-minute rendition of All Too Well hit number one in November of 2021. Supporting the single included a $1.5 million music video, which, adjusted for inflation, remains the 22nd most expensive music video ever made. Guns N' Roses based the video on the short story Without You by Del James, a former roadie of the group and close friend of Axl Rose. 
Sold separately, the hype that followed the band's first studio albums in four years sparked the purchase of 500,000 copies of the albums within the first couple of hours of release. Just within its first week, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 sold 685,000 and 770,000 copies respectively, with Use Your Illusion 1 debuting at number 2 on the Billboard Hot 200 and Use Your Illusion 2 debuting at number 1. To date, both Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 have each sold roughly 15 million copies. In addition to November Rain's peak at number 3 on the Billboard Hot 100, Use Your Illusion contained three other songs to, chop, to, to chart in the top 40, the tender Don't Cry, their cover of Paul McCartney's Live and Let Die, as well as the previously mentioned You Could Be Mine. While that level of commercial success didn't match or exceed that of Appetite for Destruction, Use Your Illusion ranks among the highest-selling rock albums of the 1990s. Critics enjoy the albums as well. Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune gave Use Your Illusion 1 3 out of 4 stars and Use Your Illusion 2 4 out of 4 stars. Talking about both albums as a whole, he said, quote, The two illusion discs represent a staggering leap in ambition, musicianship, production, and songwriting. Complementing the album's diversity and complexity with regards to structure and emotion, Janice Garza of Entertainment Weekly awarded the double album with an A rating. David Frick of Rolling Stone stated that Use Your Illusion was worth the wait, and the magazine eventually ranked it number 41 on their list of the 100 greatest albums of the 90s. I personally have to praise a double album as one of the all-time great maximalist rock albums. Sure, the bloated length gave way to filler tracks here and there, but overall the ambition of the group and the perfectionism of Axel resulted in some of the deepest and most interesting rock music of the 20th century. So while it didn't bury Appetite for Destruction enough to forfeit the band's status as an 80s band, Use Your Illusion remains an integral part of Guns N' Roses' exalted catalog. For the next destination, our time machine will take us to Chicago in October of 1970. Film critic Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times ventured to a cinema to watch a movie he was supposed to review. Apparently for Ebert, the only thing more off-putting than the over-salty popcorn of the theater was the movie itself. He couldn't muster the patience to sit through the entirety of the film. Dejected from the poor cinematic experience, Ebert ditched the theater for a beer. He ended up at the Fifth Peg, a folk club in the Chicago neighborhood of Lincoln Park. There he sat in awe of a young singer-songwriter who told stories using his acoustic guitar and soft voice. The depth of the musician's songwriting captivated Ebert, who ended up choosing to review the concert in his column rather than the subpar movie. He compared the young singer-songwriter to legends such as Hank Williams Sr. and Bob Dylan. Subsequently, in the summer of 1971, another Chicago-based singer-songwriter, Stephen Goodman, encouraged his friend Chris Christofferson to check out the subject of that Roger Ebert article perform. If you're unfamiliar with Chris Christofferson, he's undeniably one of the premier folk-slash-country singer-songwriters of all time. By 1971, he had already written three monumentally successful singles, Me and Bobby McGee, sung by Janis Joplin, Help Me Make It Through the Night by Sammy Smith, and Sunday Morning Coming Down, sung by a country legend we'll discuss later. So when Christofferson finally stumbled into Chicago's quiet nightclub with Goodman, that singer-songwriter... John Prine, who had already finished his set and was awaiting his paycheck, took out his guitar to play a private concert for Christofferson and his good and his friend Goodman. 
Christofferson, Goodman, and Prine chatted for a bit over a beer before Christofferson asked Prine to perform those same songs for him again. Prine impressed the established songwriter so much, he requested that Prine open for him in New York City. An executive with Atlanta, Atlantic Records attended that performance and enjoyed it so much, he offered Prine a recording contract the following day. If crunk and emo pop punk define the aughts, grunge and socially conscious hip-hop define the 90s, and new wave as well as hair metal define the 80s, then funk and the bevy of legendary singer-songwriters define the 70s. Joni Mitchell, Nick Drake, Cat Stevens, James Taylor, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and Carole King all released some of their most recognizable and respected work that decade. However, John Prine certainly resides in the conversation as the greatest singer-songwriter not only of that decade, but perhaps of all time. His self-titled 1971 debut, 1973 Sweet Revenge, and the 1978 classic Bruised Orange are absolute songwriting masterpieces, perfectly walking that sweet line between country and folk. When Prine tragically passed away from COVID-19 in April of 2020, in one obituary, a man named Tristan Peavy said of Prine songs, quote, He could make you laugh and cry in the same song in a way that I've never heard anyone else do. I remember reading that when Prine died and thinking, that's the best description of a songwriting I've seen. Prine even validated that description long before his death when he famously stated, quote, If I can make myself laugh about something that I should be crying about, that's pretty good. I would love right now to tell you all about my favorite Prine songs and the stories behind all of them, but for time's sake, I will just recommend five songs to check out if you're not familiar with John Prine's catalog. Those songs are Illegal Smile, Sam Stone, Fish and Whistle, Hello in There, and Aw Heck. My disclaimer, of course, is that I am not responsible for the tears you shed or the abdominal pain resulting from the laughter these songs bring. Anyways, although Prine has had memorable albums and hits in every decade. The, 70 the 70s probably results as the decade most associated with his greatness. With all that being said, let's get back into the time machine and fast forward to September 24th, 1991, perhaps the greatest day in music history, the day Nirvana's Nevermind, RHCP's Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and A Tribe Called Quest's Low End Theory were released. Also released that day, John Prine's 10th studio album, The Missing Years. The payroll of that album represented the legend within the industry that Prine established himself as, featuring Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, and Tom Petty on the record. Speaking of Tom Petty, the album also featured members of the Heartbreakers, guitarist Mike Campbell, and keyboardist Bentmon Tench, and was produced by their bassist Howie Epstein. The album's name, The Missing Years, comes with a double meaning. At first glance, the title seems to reference the gap in years between the 1991 album and his previous album, German Afternoons, released in 1986. However, the second meaning stems from the album's title track, Jesus the Missing Years. That song humor humorously explores the endless possibilities of the religious figure Jesus' whereabouts during the years between age 12 and 30, the part of his life omitted from the New Testament. 
This six-minute minimalist folk song demonstrates Prine's genius through grabbing listeners' attention with an interesting opening. Quote, it was raining, it was cold. West Bethlehem was no place for a 12-year-old, so he packed his bags and headed out to find out what the world's about. Then in seven verses, Prine tells the hilariously nonsensical story of those missing years. Events in the story include Jesus shoplifting in Europe, as well as moving in with an Irish woman in Rome, only to have affairs with, quote, pretty Italian chicks. Also during those missing years, Jesus saw the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause, experimented with drugs, started listening to the Beatles, and attempted divorce before heading back to Jerusalem. In perfect John Prine fashion, he ends the story as it began, with a hint of biblical accuracy, humorously describing the end of Jesus' life with, quote, Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? I'm a human corkscrew. All my wine is blood. They're going to kill me, Mama. They don't like me, bud. The rest of the album blends poppy and polished country rock to reflect the direction many of Prine's contemporaries were going at the time, with the stripped-down country folk associated with Prine's signature sound. Of the former, the songs that stick out include Picture Show, The Sins of of Memphisto, and Unholy, or Unlonely. Picture Show, the album's opener, features Tom Petty on backing vocals, and like Jesus the Missing Years, Prine takes a prominent historical figure and tells a silly story, inserting truths at random in effort to relate the figure to the masses. In this case, Prine loosely recounts the story of legendary actor James Dean, leaving his small-town upbringing for Hollywood in order to become a movie star. The third song on the album, The Sins of Memphisto, was a last-minute, reluctant composition at the insistence of producer Howie Epstein. It features Prine's vintage songwriting, telling unconnected stories of struggling ordinary people living presumably in Memphis, Tennessee, before inserting randomly and nonsensically hilarious cultural references. The name Mephisto combines the name of the city at hand with the demon featured in German folklore, Mephisto. The most memorable lines in the song include, quote, Grandpa's on the front lawn staring at a rake, wondering if his marriage was a terrible mistake. As well as, quote, Esmeralda and the hunchback of Notre Dame. They humped each other like they had no shame. They paused as they posed for a Polaroid photo. She whispered in his ear, Exactly Odo, Quasimodo. Shout out for being able to fit in the phrase exactly Odo Quasimodo like a puzzle piece in that song. Apparently, Prine had been using that phrase for years, like the people who use the phrase no shit Sherlock. Of that beautiful phrase, he said, quote, I'm convinced I was working the whole song to get around the punchline exactly Odo Quasimodo. My favorite of the full band songs, Unlonely, ranks for me as Prine's greatest love song. To be fair, I'm only familiar with a few Prine songs of that nature, but this is the best of those, okay? Anyways, Prine divorced his wife, Rachel Peer, in 1988. Multiple songs in the missing years reflect the fallout from the painful breakup, which we'll get to in a bit. But the album does have its fair share of love songs, too. The reason for that is because also in 1988, Prine met Fiona Whelan while on tour in Dublin. The two of them began a romantic relationship, resulting in a marriage that lasted from 1993 until Prine's death in 2020. Unlonely presumably reflects his relationship with Whelan, who later changed her last name to Waylon Prine. There isn't too much to say about this tender pop country tune, other than to focus on Prine's heartwarming lyrics. The song opens, quote, You make me feel unlonely, or you make me unlonely. I feel like the only person in the world that ever had a girl like you. 
Prine gives listeners the feels even more during the refrain, which reads, quote, Once I was lonely, nobody but me, my heart in a prison, love set me free. God woke up, he heard my plea, he sent you to me, he sent you to me. The highlights for me among the more stripped down songs include Everything is Cool and Daddy's Little Pumpkin. Everything is Cool is a slow folk ballad in which Prine sarcastically downplays the severity of his divorce. The lyricism of the song exemplifies Prine's skill of making fans laugh and cry within the same song with the refrain in which Prine sings, quote, Everything is cool. Everything's okay. Why? Just before last Christmas, my baby went away. Although listeners probably walk away with the taste of dark humor in their mouth from the frequency of that refrain, the verses suggest that this song also details meeting Fiona while in the thick of his divorce. After communicating clearly the end of his relationship with, quote, my baby went away, across the sea to an island, while the bridges brightly burn, he found himself walking down the road when God sent him an angel to get him through his tough time. It's hard not to envision that the angel was Fiona. So, of course, Prine takes a tough topic and makes it not only funny, but includes a heartening silver lining, too. Daddy's Little Pumpkin resides smack dab in the middle of the missing years, and its simplicity, humor, and catchy melody makes this bluesy folk tune an instant Prine classic. Featuring his signature Travis picking within the framework of the 12-bar blues, the instrumental provides an accessible foundation for listeners, enabling them to focus in on Prine's dark, humorous lyrics. I've read multiple interpretations of the lyrics, but I'm going to go with the less nefarious. It appears the song tells the story of two reckless individuals, the narrator and the love interest of the narrator referred to, of course, as Daddy's Little Pumpkin. My favorite lines of the song are, quote, You must be Daddy's Little Pumpkin, I can tell by the way you roll. Well, it's a quarter past eleven, and you're sleeping on the bedroom floor. I also enjoy when Memphis makes another appearance on the record in the second verse with, quote, I'm going to Memphis, got $300 in cash. All the women in Memphis going to see how long my money will last. As I mentioned, full band, pop rock with country vibes, along with stripped down guitar and vocals, dichotomize the musical vibes of The Missing Years. That being said, the most enduring song from the record, All the Best, is a happy medium between both styles. One of the great breakup songs of the 20th century, All the Best, again features Prine's Travis Picking, this time joined with minimalist per- percussion and strings with a prominent organ section. Another song, seemingly about Prine's divorce from Rachel Peer, in classic Prine fashion, he starts off the chorus with the nucleus of the song, quote, I wish you love and happiness, I guess I wish you all the best, before going off on hilarious and often nonsensical tangents, only once again to return to coherence and end the song as it began with that nucleus. The funniest and most emotive lines of All the Best include the first stanzas, quote, I wish you don't do like I do and never fall in love with someone like you, as well as the third stanzas, quote, I guess that love is like a Christmas card. You decorate a tree, you throw it in the yard. And finally, the entirety of the song's fifth stanza, quote, say you drive a Chevy, say you drive a Ford. You say you drive around the town until you just get bored. Then you change your mind for something else to do, and your heart gets bored with your mind, and it changes you. Critics love The Missing Years. Rolling Stone awarded the album four to five stars with John Millward, calling it Prine's best album since Bruised Orange. In his review for All Music, William Rollman awarded the record 4.5 out of five stars, stating, quote, Prine's gift for emotional revelation and off-the-wall humor are on display in abundance. In her 4 out of 4 star review for the Chicago Tribune, Lynn Van Matra called The Missing Years a, quote, 
don't miss for longtime Prine fans. Commercially, Prine's recognition in the music community never came as a pop singer. So while the album did not chart on the Billboard Hot 200, this 90s classic won Best Contemporary Folk Album at the 1992 Grammy Awards and contributed significantly to continuing the legacy of the legendary singer-songwriter that wrote beautiful songs into his 70s and became an American icon in the process. So back into the time machine we go. We're going to take a complete 180 for our next stop. Next on our journey, we'll venture to December 10th, 2005, which in addition to my friend Sotillo's 13th birthday, shout out my guy if you're listening, also registered the day that metal band System of a Down's fifth studio album, Hypnotize, debuted on the Billboard Hot 200. The band also released another record six months prior titled Mesmerize. Both records debuted at number one, and with Hypnotize becoming their third number one of the decade, it crowned System of a Down as the premier and biggest metal band of the aughts. Again, this is a show about hot takes, but labeling them as such... Definitely not one. Some of their most iconic songs of the aughts include the title track of their first number one album, Toxicity, the drum-driven classic, which currently has approximately 700 million plays on Spotify. Additionally, VH1 ranked this song as the 14th greatest metal song of all time in 2006. This tune also maintains the distinct privilege of being the first metal song I ever heard, which made its way into my consciousness in the backseat of my parents' car on a trip to Florida to visit my grandparents in December 2004 on my sister's CD player. Prior to that moment, I'd only heard the term heavy metal once and didn't have any music to associate it with. There lingered an idea in my head of what it may sound like, but I couldn't be sure. As soon as my sister played me this song, I asked, is this heavy metal? She said she didn't know. Anyways, Chop Suey also ranks amongst the greatest system of down songs. Another one off Toxicity, Chop Suey, along with Numb and In the End by Linkin Park, as well as Metallica's Enter Sandman, currently stand as the only metal songs with over 1 billion streams on Spotify. That classic also contains a great backstory. According to the song's producer, the legendary Rick Rubin, during the recording process of the song's bridge, frontman Serge Tankian struggled to write lyrics to the song's epic bridge. As a last resort, Rubin suggested that Tankian pick a random book off the shelf, shelf, open up to a random page, and sing the first random phrase which he sees. That's exactly what Serge did. So the iconic bridge in which he sings, quote, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, into your hands. Why have you forsaken me? In your eyes, forsaken me. In your thoughts, forsaken me. In your heart, forsaken me. Comes from a random book in Rick Rubin's house. The other monumental hit of the aughts includes BYOB. BYOB, the lead single from Mesmerize, is an in-your-face anti-Iraq war thrash metal tune. And perhaps the best written anti-war song of that era. The song, which appears as the acronym of Bring Your Own Booze, actually stands for Bring Your Own Bombs. With the repetition of the line, quote, why do they always send the poor? The band suggests that the war in Iraq is just a party for the U.S. government, in which their cover charge is the lives of poor people. BYOB, with its screaming, blazing speed, distorted guitars, and provocative lyrics, miraculously became a crossover pop success, peaking at number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it currently has nearly 500 million plays on Spotify. In addition to refreshing your memory with a shot of nostalgia, I discuss those songs in depth to convey the popularity, talent, and crossover success of a band performing a genre not easily accessible to the masses. Those three singular hits, along with their three number one albums of the aughts, all released between 2001 and 2005, prove that they are indubitably, undeniably, and categorically an early 2000s band, period, end of sentence, case close. But again, 
we are going to hop back into our time machine and enter the year 1994, the year the LA-based rock group Soil broke up. Two of the members of the band, singer Serge Tankian and guitarist Darren Malakian, along with the band's manager, Shavo Odagian, formed a new project with Odagian on bass. The trio recruited drummer Andy Kachaturian to finalize the band's lineup and name themselves System of a Down after one of guitarist Darren Malakian's poems titled Victims of a Down. In 1997, the band cemented their lineup that would endure for the remainder of their history following the martial arts injury which sidelined Andy Kachaturian. The band replaced him with drummer John Dolmayan, who they had befriended while sharing studio space. Following a well-received three-song demo, the band received tons of offers from record labels, but ultimately settled on Rick Rubin's American Recordings. Many factors set the stage for the uniqueness that has defined System of a Down. For one, all four members grew up in Los Angeles, but are of Armenian descent, with Tankian and Dolmayan born in Lebanon, and Odagian born in Yerevan, Armenia, while under Soviet control, giving them a unique perspective on society and politics. Additionally, the band's influences possessed incredible range, with Tankian stating, quote, We're into punk, death metal, metal, classic rock, jazz, gothic, hardcore, grindcore, Middle Eastern music, Armenian music, European music, poetry, funk. When we were kids, we started out listening to one type of music, but as we progressed, we were all turned on to different genres. You can only listen to so much metal before you start hungering for more. We intentionally try not to stay in one genre. These influences led to a dynamic that stumped critics looking to label them as a particular genre and endeared legions of fans to the band. They released their self-titled debut album on June 30th, 1998. System of a Down set the anti-fascist tone for the record with its cover, featuring a hand from an anti-Nazi political poster for the Communist Party of Germany in 1928. The album starts off with a bang, foreshadowing the dynamism that would characterize the band over the next decade. That opener, Sweet Pea, is an aggressive tune, both lyrically and musically, highlighted by its explosive bridge in which Surge death growls and screams before delivering the provocative words of the bridge. Sweet Pea criticizes abusive and oppressive leaders utilizing pedophilia within the Catholic Church as an example. I'm not going to read the lyrics of the bridge because they exceed what I'm comfortable communicating on the podcast, but the words certainly are powerful. The song as a whole, with its dynamics, tempo changes, intensity, and evocative lyrics, results as the perfect opening for System of a Down studio album discography. The band's first single from the record appears as the, as the third track. Sugar blends jazz and groove metal to create a song that literally sounded like nothing in 1998. Another song featuring Serge Tankian's death growl and other unique vocal dynamics. It's Malakian that helps generate the song's dichotomy with a deep groove metal during the heavy parts of the song and a circus-like riff to characterize the jazzy sections. Sugar which is a euphemism for cocaine, details society's reliance on drugs and the nihilism that can stem from addiction. The song ends with an ever-increasing tempo exploring the limits of thrash metal in which Surge screams the line, quote, in the end it all goes away, before abruptly ending. Other highlights on the record include the album's second single, Spiders, the song probably most accessible for the masses on the album, foreshadowing the epic hit power ballads down the road for the band, such as Ariel's Lonely Day and Hypnotize, opening with a tender bass riff before transitioning into a powerful rock song, which features perhaps Tankian's best belting on the album. In Spiders, which tells the story of a girl named June, the government inserts a V-chip into her brain as she sleeps, which is used to manipulate June's dreams, 
and as well as her consciousness, communicated in, in the refrain, quote, dreams are made winding through my head. The V-chip references the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which President Clinton signed into law requiring new TV sets to include V-chips in order for parents to block channels that they deem inappropriate for their children. The way I see it, the V-chip serves as a metaphor for the power that institutions, including religion, government, and the media, the spiders, if you will, wield over the average commoner, commoner in shaping how they view the world. Before I share my other favorite song from the album, some other highlights from System uh, of a Down's self-titled debut include the songs Suggestions, Peephole, and P-L-U-C-K. Suggestions is a wild, nightmarish, d- dystopian tune that blends new metal, art rock, and alternative metal, in which Tankian uses ships and light posts as metaphors for the power system that maintain order at the expense of the working class and society. Peephole combines polka music and metal, and based on the comments of Malakian, the liner notes of the album, and the face value of the lyrics, appear to say, smoke weed, but don't do hard drugs. P-L-U-C-K reigns as perhaps the heaviest song on the record, with perhaps self-titled's most sobering subject matter. P-L-U-C-K, an acronym for politically lying, unholy, cowardly killers, discusses the Armenian genocide and the restitution that the band views as owed to the present-day Armenian people by the Turkish government, who still denies the designation of the murder of over 1 million Armenians as genocide. Finally, probably my second favorite song on the album behind Only Sugar, the explosive thrash metal classic War, which denounces the tribalistic culture culture war that have led to dumb, violent wars throughout human history. In the chorus, Tankian repeatedly screams, quote, We will fight the heathens. The heathens in context of the title of the song appear to refer to the victims of the Christian Crusades, but according to the liner notes of the album, represent whoever governments deem the boogeyman as justification for invasion of their land. Also, shout out to Dolmayan, whose fiery drum performance in that song feels like a shot of adrenaline. Critics love System of a Down's debut album. Stephen Earlwine of All Music gave the album four to five stars, praising the intelligence of the band, the production of Rick Rubin, and the influence of the band's Armenian musical heritage. Kevin Ruggeri of Pitchfork Media gave the album a favorable 7.5 out of 10 review. He lauded the album's experimentalism, comparing them to a more accessible version of the weird-as-fuck 90s band Mr. Bungle fronted by Faith No More's Mike Patton. He also lauded Tankian's array of vocal styles, commending his, quote, jazz cat sassiness. The lyrics fell victim to the only criticism Ruggeri had for the record, which he felt weakened the band's attempt at being subversive. Finally, English music publication Drowned in Sound awarded System of a Down a staggering 10 out of 10 rating. Reviewer Chris Nettleton called the album superb and praised its, quote, catchy enthusiasm. He even said he prefers it over their most successful album, Toxicity. Commercially, the album didn't possess the crossover pop success of their later records. That being said, the record did chart on the Billboard Hot 200 album charts and hit number one on the Top Heat Seekers chart. The Top Heat Seekers ranks the album sales of new and upcoming artists. To date, the album has sold over 1.5 million copies worldwide. So although the album hasn't approximated the commercial success of, say, Toxicity, Mesmerize, or Hypnotize, the record served as a stepping stone to the worldwide prominent system of a down would experience in the aughts. Furthermore, the record still resonates with fans, as Sugar currently has over 200 million streams on Spotify, Spiders has over 100 million, and Sweet Pea has almost 60 million. Sure, it was the early 2000s when System of a Down dominated and consequently established themselves as one of the greatest metal bands of all time, up there with Black Sabbath, Metallica, and Pantera. 
but it was this 90s classic, their self-titled debut, that solidified their unique, near, unidentifiable, heavy sound that would carry them into the heart of the millennial zeitgeist in the 21st century. Our guest for today is back by popular demand. Since he was last on the podcast back in January, I'm not actually exactly sure what he's been doing, but I have a feeling that Rocket League was probably in the mix. Please welcome back our returning champion, accountant, cat dad, certified cool guy, and EDM apologist, Ryan Gilman. It is good to be back, <laughs> and it's hard to believe it's been since January, and Yes, a lot of Rocket League in between and nothing productive. <laughs> That's not true. I'm sure. I'm sure you've done something productive. You've. I mean, how many bachelor parties have you have you been to since January? Um, enough to keep me on my toes. That's for sure. <laughs> you also you you also turned 27, right? I am 27 now. It's definitely a different feeling. It's. I don't know. 26. I was like, yeah, whatever. It's another birthday. And this one, it's like, oh, yep, 30s coming up, huh? <laughs> and and but you are reaching the age, and we were talking about this before we started recording. You you have reached the age where you can't really drink like you used to. Um, I can drink like I used to, no problem. It's just the, the next couple of days are a bit different <laughs> than I used to. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's get to the topic of music. Um, have you been getting into any new music since the last time you were on the podcast? Um. Since the last time on the podcast, um, I actually went to a show. Um, it was a guy named Pliny. He's like more of a prog guitarist, but there was a couple of, uh, I guess, smaller bands that opened up for him, like jazz fusion type bands um, that I've been getting into. But nothing too crazy other than that. A lot of the same old, same old until, um, you know, we, I knew about this podcast and I started really going down uh, the rabbit hole of the 90s music. Yeah, I think that's like, for me, been my favorite thing about this podcast is that like it gives me purpose when, when listening to music and like gives me a reason to either like listen to new things or to revisit uh, music that I, I once held very near and dear. Oh, definitely. And like even in, in some, obviously we'll get into this, but some of these bands um, obviously heard of and listened to before, but it's nice to do something like this where you kind of listen to the entire album. And it's like, Oh, I like that song. I'm glad I actually listened <laughs> to the whole thing through this time. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, what kind of compositions have you been working on recently? I know that, you know, composing is and, and recording is uh, like a big hobby for you. Um, lately, it's been so I guess from January to like April, I was really working on like uh, production techniques around like trance and dance like uh, EDM, as we talked about, I guess, last time. But recently I've been trying to kind of, uh, I guess, mesh that with a little bit uh heavier guitar stuff uh avenge sevenfold just actually avenge sevenfold just released an album that i really liked um life is but a dream and it's just a it's a cluster of different genres and things that uh, sinister gates just did a great job i guess bringing a different aspect of guitar into so i was like all right let's just try to bring guitar into whatever i'm doing in this edm thing and see what happens well that's the thing about avenge sevenfold i, I think uh those two guitarists are just unbelievable and their work together is is pretty pretty flawless really um mm -hmm. really i think in terms of the 21st century probably two of the most reputable guitar players yeah i mean zach obviously was uh, if you've listened to them he was very punk influenced and then 
Sin is just jazz fusion, blues, and obviously metal all mixed in. And together, it just obviously made their well, own little sound. Well, isn't one of his biggest influences we're going to be talking about today, right? If, I, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh, who is his influence? <laughs> I might not know this. <laughs> all right. Well, actually, when, I, when, I get, when we get to talking about the band, which actually the first band we'll talk about, um, uh, I'll mention it. But Okay. Um, and anyways, but uh, what the the last question before we get into uh, the different albums and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, what do you think it means to be a '90s artist? Um, I think being a '90s artist was all about moving with the wave of transition. I think the '70s to '80s transition it was pretty abrupt. You know, going from the classic '70s rock to like the '80s hair metal. Thing. And we talked about that a little bit too. But then coming back to the 90s, it was almost, I feel like that was a more abrupt change. I feel like you had this, I mean, we talked about it last time with uh, Nirvana, you had this like emo rock thing and things, I guess, slowed down a bit. And so it, it bred a little bit more ground for creativity. So I guess uh, <laughs> going for cir- full circle, maybe uh, transition and creativity was what being a 90s artist was all about. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Um, so Ryan, are you a Guns N' Roses fan? <laughs> it's funny. I think everybody's a Guns N' Roses fan yeah. when they first start, you know, learning guitar or drums or bass or whatever, you know, you start off with. And, uh, I have to say this is the first time I listened to them in a while. So I'm not sure if I can, would consider myself, I guess, a fan anymore, but I love their music. It's awesome. And, you know, as I mean, you know, such a virtuous guitar player that you are, um, did you ever go through a slash phase? Oh Yeah. It's, I think I brought that up on the last interview we had, but Guitar Hero was the first time I think I listened to Guns N' Roses. I think Sweet Child of Mine was in Guitar Hero too, And then you kind of go down the rabbit hole of Appetite for Destruction after that, and you watch YouTube videos. At least I did, you know, and back when I first started going on YouTube, and you see how cool Schlass was, and he had the hat, and they're, you know, they had, we were playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people, and so he's kind of the guitar icon you think of when you think of rock and roll guitarists. And I totally, I totally agree. I feel like, you know, uh, you know, our, our, our father's generation you know they had Jimi hendrix and Mm -hmm. you know jimmy page like those are the those were the guitar players but i think like for us i mean i know it was before us but really his legacy has has lived on um Mm -hmm. and you know he's his talents are are timeless i really think like i don't think i have a single friend doesn't matter where they are well a single guitar playing friend doesn't matter where they are now in terms of their playing whether they're a folk guitarist or a metal guitarist everyone i know like every guitarist i know went through a slash phase at some point yeah because he's just so uh unique i mean nothing he does is particularly insane i guess if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty skill wise he just has such a feel when he plays like you know it's slash when you hear someone playing and you can hear like his tone and just the way he does those bends it's like that's slash and no one had done that before him which is really cool oh yeah and I, what i think is amazing about guns and roses and i talk about this in the monologue is that they're probably the heaviest band to have such crossover success yes you know i mean they had what four or five top 10 hit on the, the pop charts and like they're a, le- a legit hard rock metal band um yeah there was um I guess talk when I, I forget their first drummer's name. I think it, Adelman. Steve Stephen Adler. Adler, that's what it was. Or who it was? I'm sorry, but I know he was replaced by a drummer that actually came from I think the metal scene. And so I think when I was going over kind of their discography before this, um, there was I guess some question about whether they'd go down kind of the metal route in the '90s after uh, the album we we're about to discuss. So, like you said, they found a way to blend it in and, and 
you know, bring elements of metal in, even if it wasn't particularly that hard in a sense. For sure. So speaking of, I know you mentioned unique uh, uh, slash as unique. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of unique, what are your thoughts on uh, W. Axel Rose? <laughs> this is a weird uh, comparison, and I don't know if anyone's ever started off by talking about Axel this way. But I was listening to the stuff um, from this album, and he reminded me of like Dave Mustaine at some points. I know that's not what you wait, expected. Wait, wait. And, and from what perspective, <laughs> like his personality, his vocals, his lyricism, what? Because I, I, I'm not. I can see from like personality wise. Yes, and that's kind of where I was going with it. He was kind of a diva, but. I mean, there's like little squeals and little like monologue things that he does in the album too. I'm like, wow, this guy's just really full of himself and he thought that putting us in the album was going to work. And it did, <laughs> but that's what Dave did also. And so when yeah. I was listening to it, I was just like, oh my gosh. But like, but I mean, you know, obviously Dave Mustaine's a great guitar player and Axl Rose did, does play really good piano, but like he's known more for his vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Axl Rose is, you know, obviously it's like night and day between the skills of Dave sure. Mustaine. But I think Axl Rose is really one of the all-time great rock singers. Yeah, and I guess transitioning to that front, because that's probably what you were more going for. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, was... on a music <laughs> podcast asking about his musical abilities. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, great singer. Um, no one was, is ever going to forget that performance he did. Um, oh, it was like the VMAs 92 with, who was it? Uh, oh, El- my goodness. Uh, Elton John. Elton John, yes. Um, just an insane performance and doing November Rain in front of you know the whole world and just... Showing that how talented he was and how great of a songwriter, obviously, you know, he was too. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing bad to say outside of him just being a little bit whiny and yeah. uh, getting no, into no, fights he, with no, all his band members. He's definitely. <laughs> it was funny. I had a chiropractor appointment today, and I was talking to my chiropractor about Guns and Roses, and he was like, "Yeah, wasn't Axl Rose sober?" And I was like, "Yeah, I think like I don't think he really ever had like a drug problem or like an alcohol problem that I know of. He found other ways to get into trouble." <laughs> I think it was him getting re- uh, mad at the rest of the band for their drug problems. <laughs> he, he got mad at everybody, but I, I think I think he's chilled out. He from, has chilled yeah. out. I mean, he doesn't walk off the stage quite as much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he's 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 at the point where like he actually has to earn his money. It's not gonna, you know, just find its way to him. Absolutely. Um, but uh, anyways, so what do you think of Use Your Illusion One and Two? Now. I always, it's interesting because technically they're two separate albums, but for right. me, they're one album. They're Use Your Illusion, but. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, and I actually, I had didn't know that before. Was, like, I always thought they were two separate albums, but they literally dropped 30 songs at the exact same time. And I just thought that's one a testament to how good of songwriters they were. And uh, two, I know there was just a huge tour that went along with it too, so I couldn't have imagined just knowing and rehearsing all those 30 songs and just doing a world tour that lasted two years. Like that entire era uh, and this album defined them i think appetite for destruction was awesome but this is where they i think they hit their stride well because i think i I totally agree because i remember um uh when i graduated middle school my best friend at the time kenzie she got me um like her mom was a huge 80s metal fan Mm -hmm. and her mom somehow had like had like a um a bootleg uh uh copy of um a guns N' roses pay-per-view concert from somewhere in i think i think it was in argentina Mm -hmm. and soundgarden was opening for them um, and I watch it and it was just like, it was amazing because it really, they really, they were the biggest band at the time and they kind of had that, fu- that was their peak in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, their commercial success. Sure. So, I mean, it, that, that tour, like you said, is just really reflective of their peak, you know? Yeah. Because after that, um, people started leaving the band. <laughs> people, well, they had that, they had that really, um, you know, sub, well, I mean, it depends on who you ask, but they had a sub cover album and then, mm-hmm. uh, then 
the bands essentially split up, and then it took what Chinese Democracy didn't come out till two thousand eight, and uh, you know <laughs> Axel was the only remaining, <laughs> and I guess Dizzy Reed, you know, he came in around Use Your Illusion, but, right, right. But, um, but like you said, yeah, that was the last album that they, I guess it was truly them, I guess, for, or from what they started from at least. Definitely, definitely. Um, anyways, so uh, how would you say that, you know, you mentioned Appetite for Destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that User Illusion compares to Appetite for Destruction? It's, I actually like User, User Illusion more because it, prove that they could do both ends of the spectrum like appetite for destruction obviously had all their i guess best known hits but that was i don't know if they hadn't done use your illusion they could have been seen as a one-trick pony that way whereas they doubled down and they basically they they even uh, used like like parts of like metal like I, i think it was like I don't know if I can swear, but back off, bitch. Like, there's like songs on there where you, you, you can curse. It's it's okay. You're 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 reciting the name of a title of a song. You can, you can curse. Yes. Well, there's songs like that. Um, yeah. Listen to the lyrics later. Also, not maybe the best message in the song, but um, there's yeah, a- yeah. I, do not do not go to Axl Rose for life advice. <laughs> but there's songs in there where it's like, oh, they can do everything. They can do soft like November Rain, and then they can do. Um, just things like that and back off bitch where it's like wow they're like doing like almost like metal riffs here and they're making it work and then you bring yeah. in the acoustic guitar here and there out of nowhere and it just like they just had such a wider range on this album uh, to go back to your question which makes it I think I don't know if you want to call it superior to Appetite to Destruction but just in my opinion more impressive well it's interesting I think it's like it's like a, you know uh, it's a two way street because I, I, you know on the one hand I agree with you I think this album really demonstrates their abilities far more than Appetite for Destruction did, but because it was a double album, mm-hmm. I think inevitably, and they recorded so many songs, inevitably you have some filler songs. Yes. Um, yes. But my favorite thing about Use Your Illusion has to be the uh, inclusion of those epic songs, like, you know, the seven and a half minutes plus, mm-hmm. like songs obviously, you know, November Rain and I talk a lot about that song in the monologue, and, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked about that in past episodes. Um, but other songs like Estranged and Coma mm. and Civil War, I mean, yep. th- those are just like incre- incredible rock songs. Epic. I'm surprised, especially, well, I know Civil War is one of their bigger songs, but I'm just surprised it wasn't kind of on the level of some of the other stuff they did. I Personally, when I listen to Civil War, I'm like, wow, like, that's an epic. That's a story right there. I don't know. I really like that one a lot. And it's staying with Estranged. Um I guess we're going back and forth between Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Not sure if we wanted to keep those segregated at all. But going back to Illusion 1, I liked Perfect Crime too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's oh, just, that's a great one. There's just, just It just shows, like we said, I guess it's we're hammering it home here. But both sides of the fence here, they just can do a little bit of everything. They can write ballads and they can write hits. <laughs> yeah, for uh, de- definitely. And Perfect Crime, I love that because that's like, you know, Guns N' Roses and Metallica, they were, I think, good friends back in the day, and they were working on, uh, you know, the Black Album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metallica was working on the Black Album when Guns N' Roses was working on um, Use Your Illusion. And I know that they would, you know, share um, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on. And, um, but, like, Perfect Crime to me, that's like a thrash metal song. You that's know? his metalish slash guy. And I was so, he- I was yeah. so here for it, man. <laughs> that, that and Shotgun Blues, I think, are the two. Yeah. Like, um, anyways, the last question I have, uh, so we can talk about other albums, <laughs> <laughs> much to our dismay. This is um, a Guns N' Roses podcast yeah. now. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is called Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Uh-oh. 
Um, do you agree that GNR uh, uh, are an '80s band? No, I don't think they're an '80s band. I, I like it's tough though because I know the the purpose of this is to think or do albums of gun. Uh, I guess bands that you didn't think were from that decade but put out a good album that decade. I know we're going. I'm going on a reel here, but like, I really think they're kind of an '80s and '90s band. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I think like the reason that I included them as an 80s band is I think because they're, in terms of hair metal, they are the obviously the best hair band. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had their biggest hits and like the songs that casual listeners know the best. But mm-hmm. um, I totally hear you. Um, but uh, it, c- can we move on? I guess, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All right, now we're going to go. We're just going to do another one. We're going to do another. After this, we're going to do uh, another 180, but right now we're going to do a 180. <laughs> um, so, Mr. John Prine. Mr. John um, Prine. So, had you heard of John Prine before preparing for this interview? So, like, I think it was um, in COVID. There was this cool little Facebook thing going around where it's like, we have nothing to do. Let's just start posting albums on each other's walls. And, like, you listen to that album. And I, you posted... I think it was this album, and I listened to it. Did it, it wasn't this album. It, it was his, okay. his debut album. His, his debut, his album. self-titled debut. Yeah. Okay, because I had listened to that before, but since then I hadn't really listened to him. He was kind of a, a newer artist that it, I'd sat down and listened to. You know, it's interesting. He was the first real celebrity to die from COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, but there there was another singer, but I, I can't remember who, who who they were. But yeah, so John Prine he passed uh, during COVID. So he was, you know, I think when I posted that. Um, you know, I was I had his death um, or his illness at the time in sure. mind, um, but you know his debut album is incredible. Um, but and and I for me it's like John like why I love John Prine is that I just think that he is you know when God made a singer songwriter that's <laughs> that's the 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 skills that he had in mind were sure. were, were the ones that John Prine put out there. Um, but I just I'm curious because I know that you know your music tastes and like what you perform and obviously there's over a lot of overlap we're in the same band but um <laughs> there is uh, some differences yeah. um in what we enjoy doing as musicians mm-hmm. so for you as somebody that's not a singer songwriter what does it mean to be a singer songwriter it's definitely um the more I listened to John Prine and then it really reminded me of stuff of things that you bring to the band sometimes on the side where it's like you're really just telling a story. It's less about the um, intricacies of the instruments, which are still important, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely more of a weight on the words that are coming out of your mouth, and it's easier said than done painting a picture for someone listening to this, listening to a singer-songwriter than it is for, let's say, a band that's more focused on, like, you know, I guess musical stuff i don't know i'm going on a rant now for sure no 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 all, all good um and uh i know we we had been talking about we, we, you mentioned that you had heard about him during mm. covid when i posted that 70s album did you check out any of his stuff from the 70s because i think that's the decade most associated with his you know most well-known tunes um a little bit but i i was more i really liked the out this album actually yeah. it was it reminded me so back when i was um Growing up, we lived in Tucson, Arizona for a little bit, and we used to go, uh, it was like 8,000 elevation, uh, 8,000 feet up from where we were in the mountain base called Mount Lemon. And on the way up, my mom would always play Gordon Lightfoot, and all I could think of the entire time I was listening to this album was like, I'm going up the mountain right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going up the mountain. This is beautiful. And 
yeah, I guess going back to your question, I listened to some of this stuff from the seventies, but I really actually liked this album a lot better. Yeah. It, it, it's a great album, man. And it's one of those things that, um, so the second, I think the second song on the album is all the best. Yes. Um, and that was the only song that I had was familiar with before checking out this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and then listening to it, I totally agree. There's like definitely four or five songs that I think are just like all-time great John Prine. Not only all-time great John Prine songs, but just all-time great, you know, folk country tunes. Yes. Um, Daddy's a little punk. That's what I was going to... All right, <laughs> Daddy's a right. little punk. So oh, my I, God. I, I love that song so much. That's a good so song. That is... That's pro- other than all the best, that's my favorite song on the album. I'm glad because I, I remember I was when I'm listening to an album I'm like I'm cleaning the house or I go on a walk or I'm doing something where I'm like I'm making a music video to kind of what I'm doing and Daddy's Little Pumpkin came on I remember I just like stopped what I was doing and I was like whoa 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 this is hitting me a little bit deeper <laughs> <laughs> my, my my favorite moment of that song is that when um, when Johnny Cash it goes I'm going down to I think he says I'm going down to Memphis got $300 in mm-hmm. cash I, uh, that's so he's the kind of thing he says I got $300 in cash mm-hmm. um, uh, you know all, all all the women gonna see how long my money can last <laughs> that was, cause that's... I was trying to figure out at that point like I thought I don't know I thought it was like a, maybe a love song at first cause I, I'm really bad at like listening to lyrics and then I got to that part of the song I'm like this is not a, this is not a love song <laughs> this is something completely different <laughs> yeah it's uh, the way that I describe it in the monologue it's just about two reckless individuals mm-hmm. that's really that's really what it's about um, anyway so other than Daddy's Little Pumpkin which I totally agree with it's an incredible song what are some of your favorite songs from that album I really uh, liked 3rd of July um, I think it's, it was it 3rd of July it's it's towards that's the, the second to last song I think or the last song one of the it was a really sad lullaby and I was just sitting there and I was like oh my gosh yeah well John John Prine has a habit of writing hilarious songs and then also writing just the most somber mm-hmm. songs that you've ever heard yeah and so the the transition between the two because one moment I was sitting there I was like there's like you said like very positive um, funny songs and then you hit you hit some of those where it's like. Oh, it makes you think a little bit. Um, 3rd of July definitely did that for me. Um, the Sins of Manfisto. Oh, that's a great one. That one where I was mm, like, I love think that. the melody is so simple, yeah. but I was like, that's I, maybe going back and answering your first question better. That's what a singer-songwriter does <laughs> right there. They have like a simple little melody mm-hmm. that just accompanies just a beautiful story. And I think yeah. that's, if I was going to describe a singer-songwriter song from this album, that's it right there. Love that, love that. Um, my last question on on John Prine is, uh, what genre would you designate his music as, based on you know what you've heard from the Missing Years and maybe some stuff that you'd heard pr- uh, prior? Um, it's really hard because you hear in this album, it's got a little bit of like the late '80s, early '90s feel, where it's kind of got like I guess we're going down a little bit of the musical rabbit hole, but there's like a reverby drum sound yeah, yeah. where it's like upbeat like an 80s song but then you've got that folky country guitar slash singing over top of it so i don't know man i i can't off the top of my head i cannot give you a genre i just know it's good <laughs> <laughs> i hear that all right um we're gonna move on to our next artist um and uh so i i you know i i would assume that you are a fan of System of a Down, but mm-hmm. I've never actually talked with you about them. So are you a System of a Down fan? Yeah, um, definitely a fan. Um, I probably know less about them than you would have thought. I knew all their big hits and 
uh, obviously some of their big songs are part of meme culture, but well, they're just thrown into memes now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, um, I'm really glad that I sit down and actually listen to their first album for this because that was an album that I actually listened to the least. And it, their roots are just there. It, it's cool to see that they never really changed from where they started. And that's what makes them, I think, special is that they just kind of went outside the box for a band in the 90s. Absolutely. I totally hear you on that. Um, when was the first time that you remember hearing them? Um, I think one of their, I think it was like talk, toxicity. Um, I think it was like at a school dance. Like it was like, <laughs> why is this on right now? It was, it was like sixth or seventh grade. And like, like why were they being played at a school dance? I think somebody like, it wasn't me, but you know, back in the day you had like the iPod videos and shuffles and they had it plugged into a stereo system. And I'm pretty sure some kid was just playing a joke on people and going and like oh, that's a great prank but you know what's awesome is that a lot of the kids were like what is this but then a few were just started like dancing and like banging their heads and stuff like that and that, that's how you know it's a good band did, did anyone mosh to uh, oh absolutely yeah, yeah but these are also a bunch of like 13 year olds when, when at my 8th grade dance um, you know we had that energy um, of wanting to mosh to bands like System of a Down but they didn't play that mm-hmm. um, uh, but they did play Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne and <laughs> some bright 13-year-old boy decided, hey, let's start a mosh pit. And I was like, hell yeah. And we moshed at the 8th grade dance to Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne. There's nothing more, (laughs) there's nothing that brings you uh, closer to others than moshing to a song that you shouldn't be moshing to. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so let's, uh, back to System of a Down. Sure. Um, So have you listened in depth to any of their like most popular albums? Because I know like obviously Toxicity is probably the holy grail of their discography, Um, but they're you know mesmerized and hypnotized. Have you listened to any of those records before? Um, probably like on like road trips and stuff like that, but nothing like where I'm like really listening to them a lot on like my playlists. And honestly, like after sitting down and listening to this album all the way through, it's like I really should give the other albums like a bit deeper of a listen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would recommend Toxicity and Mesmerize. Mm-hmm. I think those are probably my two favorite. Toxicity is obviously has their biggest hits on it, but mm-hmm. Mesmerize um, has a lot of really good tunes as well. Mm-hmm. Did you know that they had released an album in the 90s? I knew that there was not like... There's an album they had released before. Uh, they had released before their big stuff, but I didn't realize it was actually. I think it was the late '90s. That it was their, their self-titled. That was the yeah. first one, right? Yeah. Right. I didn't realize it was actually. I think it was '98. I couldn't believe that. I always thought it was a. They were like a 2000s band, so it was a surprise to me. Well, what did you think of? What did you think of their debut? The 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 album the their self-titled. I loved it. I, there was like I think it was. I got to Spiders, and I was like, whoa, this is like their origins. Like, because you can, obviously in their newer stuff, it's a little more polished. They obviously spent, uh, I guess, more money on recording it and stuff like that. This this one was a little bit more raw compared to those. And you're just, you know, you're hearing the origins of them, and um, everything's in like C sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's like the same key. It's beautiful. Um, It's definitely, as a metal guitarist, I can like, I can kind of hear in my head how it should be played, but obviously it's much more intricate than that. The stuff they were doing, like it's a lullaby, the first minute of the song and second, you're going into like a break beat down. Uh, it's just awesome. I loved it. Absolutely. Um, other than spiders, were there any like tracks that stood out as, as your favorite or just stood out for, you know, a particular reason? Sugar. There was like this. Sure, I love sure. That's that's one of my all time favorite system songs. Really, it it 
question. The riff reminded me a little bit of a, of like an Alice in Chains type chromatic. I, I don't know. Again, we might be getting a little bit deep, and we might not agree I on that. But. I got it. I, I got it. I will listen to it again, and then because you know, off the top of my head, uh, I, I can't really answer that is because that's a very deep question. Yeah. And as somebody who considers themselves a pretty big Alice in Chains fan, I don't want to give you a half-assed answer. Sure, so. sure. Yeah, and I know that's probably getting off topic, but I think there was just. Oh no, no, no! It's definitely not getting off topic. You talk about Alice in Chains in a '90s podcast, never off topic. <laughs> There was just parts of the song where I was like, ooh, this is kind of like, like, there's a chromatic, I, I don't want to be too music nerd right now, but there's like a chromatic little lick that he's doing where it's like, ooh, that's so Alice right there. I like, love what you said, I don't want to be a music nerd, and then went on to talk about, uh, you know, a chromatic riff. <laughs> but yeah, that one, and I would say War, um, yeah. it, that was definitely, you know, how like, when I was talking about John Prine and um, when an... Uh, Dice Little Pumpkin maybe stop and think that like I, I'd say War off that album was the one where I had to stop like what I was kind of doing and like listen to what was actually being said because it was a pretty deep song. No, War is I think one of uh, their best songs in their entire discography and is one of the songs that I kind of go in depth a little bit um, on in the monologue because it stood out to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so my last two questions is that, you know, it, it's, I'm going to start with a statement and then a follow-up question. So in my monologue, I made a take that System of a Down is one of the all-time great metal bands, like of all time in terms of skill, you know, uniqueness and popularity. Um, and I kind of compared them like they're up there with, you know, Pantera, Black Sabbath, Metallica. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? Absolutely. They, like they were, them and um, Pantera, they kind of planted the roots that like a lot of Honestly, the metal core that came about in like the early 2000s to mid 2000s copied so much from them. Like, there was never bands doing what they did. The System of Down that is until after System of Down had already done it. Like, um, just between the harmonies they were doing and just like, just kind of. Again, I know it's like kind of musical oriented, but there were some things the guitarist was doing where that's just so metal core. But it's not metal core. They just stole from him. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that? And uh, the last question is that, like, you know, I think for me, um, Serge Tankian, um, you know, amongst my friend group in middle school and in high school, we always regarded him up there with Axl Rose as one of the all-time great um, rock and metal singers. So, you know, where would you rank him amongst the, you know, the all-time best uh, singers oh. of, of those genres? I mean, he's at the top. There's just, like, he was the first to really, like, do these these singing slash shouting rants in the middle of songs where it's like that's that's metal right there man like it's it's less polished for sure uh like we've i i guess a common theme of what we've been talking about so far is the lyricism there's just little things that you can tell he's he's passionate about what he's singing about and that's i think goes a long way when you're talking about a frontman slash singer too so I would agree. I don't know if I have a list for you right now. I couldn't rank him in like yeah. a top five, top ten, but right. he's got to be. Well, like I mean, like is is he in that top echelon? Absolutely. Though? Yeah. Because like yeah, to me he's he's up there with you know because when I think of the I mean again I don't have a list off the top like off the top of my head but like you know when I if you ask me just oh, oh who are your, who do you think are some of the greatest you know rock singers of all time probably you know Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. um, Axl Rose we were talking about earlier, Chris Cornell, mm-hmm. Lane Staley those guys and I would put Serge. Right up there with them. Absolutely. He deserves to be. He, yeah, he, he's incredible. But anyways, Ryan, thank you so much. Um, 
the you gave a, and this was a, a great conversation um and uh i, I appreciate your time and um yeah, man. i'm looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation absolutely man let's do it all right man take care you too thank you all for listening and a special thanks to my good friend ryan gilman for being a phenomenal guest have a great rest of your day and whatever it brings hopefully music is involved again i'm dove brenner and this is hot cakes from a 90 stand take care 